0: This is Sandy Clough and Sean Tar on Mile High Sports. And good afternoon. Welcome to Sandy and Sean on this Wednesday afternoon in the Mile High City. It is the 10th day of January 2024, and it is a busy day in sports. Two rather shocking announcements made This very afternoon, within the last couple of hours, really, a couple of 72-year-old head football coaching icons have stepped away. One voluntarily, the other perhaps not quite as voluntary, but Pete Carroll in Seattle at age 72 will remain with the Seahawks' Organization. He will be reassigned and will have much more on the Carroll story with Dr. Rick Perea, who has worked with the Seahawks collectively and with Pete Carroll individually for many years, knows him well, is on top of this story and believes that uh, Carroll, while preferring to stay on as head coach, is very much in agreement that there is a role for him still to play within the Seahawks organization. He will have nothing to do, officially speaking, according to the Seahawks, with the selection of his successor. That may not be quite as true in Tuscaloosa, Alabama today, where Nick Saban has apparently retired. After 17 years at Alabama, 2007 through 2023, a total of seven national championships in that time, Alabama has won at least 10 games in 16 straight seasons under Saban, the longest streak by any program in the Associated Press poll era that goes back to 1936. The Crimson Tide reached the college football playoff virtually every year since the inception of the college football playoff. And that would be eight of the ten seasons of the CFP era. And going back to 1998, whether it be BCS or CFP, Nick Saban has won seven national titles, six at Alabama, one at LSU. That is as many titles as Urban Meyer, Kirby Smart, and Dabo Swinney have won all together during that period of time. They are next on the list. Behind Saban's seven, you have Meyer with three at two different schools much as Saban won seven at two different schools. You have Kirby Smart with two at Georgia. Very recently, he was bidding for a third straight title this year, and Dabo Sweeney won a couple at Clemson. But you get the idea. Saban has been one of the great coaches in the history of college football. 201 wins at Alabama, tied with Vince Dooley the former coach at Georgia for the second most wins at a single SEC school. Bear Bryant, no surprise, the leader at 232 wins at Alabama over a 25-year period. Saban's coaching career includes 292 wins, 71 losses, and one tie in 28 seasons. Uh, Sixth all-time in the FBS and 12th in NCAA college football history. That includes all divisions of college football. Uh, Yes, the seven national titles stand out, but so do 12 conference titles. 11 in the Southeast Conference and one in the MAC. 19 bowl wins for Nick Saban. He retires today at the age of 72 after having said back in November, if you're considering retirement, you might as well already be retired. He said at the time in November of 2023 that he wasn't considering retirement at that point. Alabama recently lost in the college football playoff semifinals at the Rose Bowl to eventual national champion Michigan. That was a tough game and a difficult loss for Alabama, which had the lead in the final five minutes of the game, 20-13, to 13, only to give it up and eventually lose in overtime by a score of 27-20. to 20. And, of course, Michigan decisioned Washington the other night, 34-13, for the national title. But those are the two big sports stories nationally uh, this afternoon across uh, the spectrum. Uh, in the National Football League and in major college football, the retirement of Nick Saman and the uh, dismissal of Pete Carroll as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. But again, uh, perhaps a little more complexity uh, in that story, which we will address in greater detail on our weekly podcast with uh, Dr. Rick Perea, which will be airing right around 530 about an hour and a half from now, a little less than that, right here on Mile High Sports. And, of course, you are listening to Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. I'm Sandy Clough. Sean Rotar is off today and will be returning later this week. You can listen to us at milehighsports.com slash listen or watch us at milehighsports.com slash watch. You can also Listen via the Mile High Sports app, and you can call or text us with your questions, comments, and criticisms at 303-831-1340. Our executive producer, of course, as always, is the great Danny Bailey. Uh, RF Dean will join us at 420. We'll talk some avalanche, and as mentioned, Dr. Rick Perea, right around 530, the esteemed performance psychologist and uh, a man with... Uh, I imagine a great deal to say about the events of the day. Dr. Perea worked for many years with Nick Saban, but we'll be talking particularly this afternoon about the uh, coaching changes that have uh, traditionally been a part of this week, the week that follows the end of the regular season in the National Football League. But uh, there have been at least a couple of shockers, the firing of Mike Vrabel, as head coach of the Tennessee Titans, and, of course, uh, the news regarding Pete Carroll today. Also, some uh, controversial assistant coaching dismissals around the NFL and a couple of assistants who have spoken up either privately or publicly without attribution necessarily, but uh, publicly speaking up uh, regarding their firings. Uh, in Jacksonville, an anonymous assistant coach who was fired this week said that among the many assistants fired by head coach Doug Peterson and or the Jacksonville organization, uh, the fired coach said the solutions have left the building. The problems remain in the building. And, of course, there was the uh, widely reported uh, story that originated with the New York Post that uh, Don uh, Wink Martindale, uh, the long-esteemed defensive coordinator, most recently of the New York football giants, had two of his defensive assistants fired by Brian uh, Brian Dable and or the giant front office uh, this week and responded to those firings by, uh, storming into Brian Dable's office, or at least storming out of Dable's office, cursing his way out of the room and out of the building. Today, there is a headline, and Danny Bailey, you can correct me if I'm wrong on the particulars, suggesting that now Martindale has been fired and is free to pursue other coaching openings around the NFL which might well include a defensive coordinator spot in Philadelphia. And, of course, the Eagles and the Giants occupy the same division, the NFC East. And it is also possible that one of the outstanding young executives in the NFL, Adam Peters, currently working as the assistant general manager of the San Francisco 49ers, will be working Elsewhere in the coming year, he has been interviewed or is being pursued by several teams, including the Washington Commanders, the Las Vegas Raiders, and the Los Angeles Chargers. Peter's a former lead lieutenant under John Elway in the Bronco front office. Yes, during their Super Bowl years. Uh, Adam has not been around uh, since being brought on uh, by the San Francisco 49ers and Kyle Shanahan as uh, essentially an assistant general manager from the beginning. He had different titles along the way, but essentially he was assistant general manager to the 49ers uh, helping to tutor John Lynch, who had no executive experience prior to his being hired as general manager of the 49ers. There have been some rumblings that Lynch will be promoted to the position of president of football operations leaving the general manager's position vacant and perhaps allowing the San Francisco 49ers to match or exceed any offers that Peters receives from other teams. Peters has privately expressed a desire to return to Denver, perhaps as a general manager, but that does not seem to be in the offing at the moment. Uh, The Broncos having uh, all but committed earlier this week to retaining George Payton as their general manager. And we'll hear a little bit from George Payton as we uh, proceed through this uh, particular Wednesday afternoon. Uh, The Nuggets are in action tonight against the Utah Jazz uh, out in Salt Lake City while the Avalanche take on the Las Vegas Golden Knights and The uh, game will be airing on TNT. Yeah,
1: both games on national TV because the
0: Nuggets are uh, ESPN this evening. Now, do we know for sure that the Avs will be on TNT tonight because on one or two occasions this year they've been blacked out? Uh, I forgot we, about that. We know the nuggets will be. On yeah. ESPN. I forgot about that. Uh, I
2: did try to watch one of those so, games. Yes.
0: Uh, a bummer. And, and I did too. Uh, a couple of times unsuccessfully. Uh, we will see what happens with, uh, uh, with all of that. But uh, I do want to get to uh, an extension of what we were talking about yesterday on the program. The Broncos did their uh, post-mortem press conference uh, earlier this week. Um, uh, Three of uh, uh, the main characters all spoke, Sean Payton, the head coach, George Payton, the general manager, and uh, owner Greg Penner, who basically is operating on a day-to-day basis as owner of uh, the Denver Broncos. And uh, we have a few uh, more uh, bits of the Peyton press conference to share with you today. And uh, we've heard a lot about the Broncos draft picks or lack thereof, certainly in recent years, this year at the moment, the Broncos have six draft picks, no second rounder, but a pick in every one of the other rounds, including round one and rounds three through seven. Uh, The Broncos right now are situated in the first round with uh, the opportunity to make the 12th overall selection. Of course, they could trade down for extra picks. They could trade up if they have a particular player. You would assume it would be a quarterback in mind. In theory, they could trade up. But you wonder, honestly, since they don't have a lot of picks and they don't have Players, At least those that they would consider trading who would bring back much in exchange for a chance that the Broncos might move up in this upcoming draft. And Peyton spoke earlier this week, George Peyton, the general manager of the Broncos, uh, whether he has all that much influence over the draft or not, he did have an assessment on the 2023 draft class
2: i thought i think it's a really good rookie class you, you didn't see it on sundays all the time we see it in practice obviously marvin mims you know had a you know pro bowl year as a returner you know work in progress as a receiver but he had some really big moments uh you know riley moss we feel is a starter in this league and, and he was you know one of our best special team players if not our best and uh we see it in practice. We see the cover skills, and we see the transition quicks, the toughness, and the instincts. You saw it a little bit in game. He played a little bit of the dime role. Uh, Drew Sanders, same, big upside. You know, he played inside, he played outside. Started coming on late in the year, and it was really good on special teams. Uh, I'll probably leave someone out, but JL Skinner got an opportunity this past week and, and excelled on teams. We see it in practice: the range, the physicality. Scout Team Player of the Week multiple times. And then Alex Forsyth, you know, we feel he's a starter in this league at center. And then you look at the free agent class, college free, you know, Jaleel McLaughlin, Nate Atkins, and then there's a number of others that we feel can play. And so, uh, you know, much much like some of the others, you know, um, uh, you know, McMillan, J Mac McMillan, who first year got to play in the last game and then grew the entire offseason when he got his chance, he excelled. We feel there's a number of the players in this class uh, that can can make that jump as well.
0: All of that is true as far as it goes. Uh, But with all due respect, being named as Scout Team Player of the Week suggests that either you won't dress out on Sunday or Saturday or Monday or Thursday, Either that or your role, at least from the line of scrimmage, will be extremely limited. And that was certainly true through most of the season for even the top draft picks mentioned by George Payton, including Moss and Mims and Sanders, all of whom played very, very little, from the line of scrimmage during the course of the season. Now, all three played a bit more late in the season, especially after the Broncos were officially eliminated or all but officially eliminated from playoff contention. But because of the numbers and the fact that the Broncos didn't have a lot of draft picks in 2023, and it's more or less – a similar scenario for 24, and in fact, the missing draft pick, the second rounder, is one that the Broncos traded away as part of the package needed for New Orleans to accept the Denver hiring of Sean Payton. So this is not a Russell Wilson draft pick that the Broncos are missing in the upcoming draft, although there were elements of the Russell Wilson deal that were involved and they're not having very many draft picks in 2023. Uh, Jaleel McLaughlin, another example of a player who, yes, played more late in the year, even started a game or two late in the season. But earlier on, though he showed, along with Mims, the capacity to make the big play, these weren't the guys playing, which made it a little confusing uh, as to whether Sean Payton, as a coach, didn't like Sean Payton's draft picks very much or Sean Payton didn't play draft picks very much early in the season draft picks that were either made or strongly recommended by George Payton. Although the dynamics remain unclear, it still seems almost certain that George Payton will be returning next year as the general manager of the Broncos. Uh, As much influence as Sean Payton seems to have, as much authority as Sean Payton seems to have, I'm not sure, even if the job were open, that the general manager position here in Denver would be all that attractive to very many people. All right, enough of football, and we move on to hockey, where the Avalanche played, according to... Their head coach, Jared Bednar, their most complete game of the season on Monday night here in Denver against the Boston Bruins, a 4-3 shootout win for the Avs. Uh, The standings tell us, and so does head-to-head competition between the two teams, that the Avalanche will need a similarly superb performance tonight in order to handle the Las Vegas Golden Knights at Ball Arena. Talk to Arif Dean about all of that next here on Mile High Sports. Say what's.
1: Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
1: Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at superbook.com. Here's
0: Sean and Sandy. Sandy Clough, Sean Rotar. Sean is off today. We'll be returning later this week. You may recognize the tune as the Michigan fight song in deference to our next guest, Dean, who attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and, um, Although on uh, the hockey front, this has not, at least so far, been a banner year for the University of Michigan. They are celebrating yet another national championship, and they did it with a 15-0 season, I believe, Arif, if I'm not mistaken. You know more about Michigan football than I do from having attended uh, the university, but the first 15-0 season in the history of Michigan football.
1: That is correct, and you know what? If it if we have to sacrifice the glorious hockey program that is that,
0: yeah, is, yes. you know, a,
1: a juggernaut every year. If we have to sacrifice it for a year to get this game, that's right,
0: that's right. Get get football over the line, and uh, <laughs> 26 years ago, Michigan was also national uh, champion uh, with Brian Greasy as the quarterback and uh, yeah. Lloyd Carr as the coach. I think right, Lloyd yep, Carr, and a backup QB. Yeah, named Tom Brady. (laughs) And uh, Tom Brady was backing up. That's exactly right at uh, that particular time. But uh, we're here to talk about the National Hockey League in general and the Avalanche in particular. Jared Bednar-Araff said the other night after the game that uh, uh, he felt this might have been the Avalanche's most complete game of the season. Is that the kind of game you saw?
1: I absolutely did. I saw a game that they matched the Bruins kind of line by line, pairing by pairing, and and it kind of gave me it was like a vintage 2023 season type type of game where both Byram and Manson were missing. So you had your entire second defense pair out of the yeah. lineup, yeah, and obviously right. still missing guys like Lekkinen and whatever. But Miles Wood also sick. But everybody that played, it felt like they all had their best game. Like, Jonathan Druen, best I've seen him in an avalanche uniform, and he's been incredible for a couple weeks.
0: Even now. though he wasn't on the score sheet, he played 28 yeah. minutes, 16 seconds, an indication that uh, Bednar thought that uh, Druen was one of the four best forwards um, uh, on the ice. He actually played a little more than Nashushkin did. And, uh, of course, McKinnon and Renton were well over 30 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on on Monday night. But I, I agree, and I think uh, – We're beginning to see signs, even when he doesn't score or set up a play, that Ruan is a man that Bednar can use in all situations.
1: That's the biggest thing that I I really enjoyed about his growth and development these last two months is, or not even two months, I would say probably about a month, is that he's become such a good, well-rounded player where he fits like it makes sense. Remember in the beginning of the season when Druin was playing with Miko and Nate, it kind of felt like you were shoving a square peg in a round hole. And now it makes all the sense in the world. So it obviously sacrificed Val's position in that spot, but Val's on the second line now, driving which helps the line, second
0: line, right?
1: Which helps the second mm-hmm. line. When Lekinen comes back, now you got Val and Lekinen back on the second line, right? You know, you're still missing, you still want Ryan Johansson to elevate his play or to obviously be replaced with another second-line center, but just by having Drew do what he does, do what he's been doing, it goes back to the conversations we had over the summer where now suddenly he is giving you the type of play that you can have from him to play with Miko and Nate and to allow Val and Leckinen to drive that second line when Leckinen's healthy. And, and, and you know, I can't say enough good things First time I had to, I was on the show with you guys early in the summer, I said, I'm going to make a prediction that Drouin scores three goals in the Avalanche's three-game road trip to start the season. He obviously didn't do that, but just he just came off a stretch of scoring four goals in a three-game stretch. So now suddenly he's, he's playing a well-rounded game and he's scoring, producing pretty much every night.
0: The uh, fly in the ointment, uh, along with the goaltending, I suppose, which we'll get to in a few minutes, The fly in the ointment continues to be, and you touched on it, uh, the second-line center position. Uh, Ross Colton played the other night. He was a plus-one over 13 minutes, 17 seconds. Johansson had an assist and was also a plus-one as the third-line center, playing 11 minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, You seem to be suggesting that the avalanche hope is that Johansson will eventually emerge as the clear-cut number-two center. Otherwise, there might be a trade. I'm guessing those are the two things that the Avalanche would prefer to have happen as opposed to Colton centering that second line.
1: So not necessarily. I would say there's still a possibility that Colton would be the guy. But I think, to be honest with you, I felt more like that would be an option before Drouin took off. because. I kind of had this theory, and, you know, this is a way that teams have been built in the past that have won Stanley Cups. I, I irked back to the Chicago Blackhawks that won those three in six years. And uh, if you have four strong wingers, you can get away with your second-line center being more of like a second-ish, third-ish line center. So, you know, I, I had this theory that maybe the Avalanche go out and trade for somebody like Jake Denzel, for example, and really stack the top six wingers with Miko, Val, Lekinen, and, and an acquisition, and have Ross Colton slot, and slotted in as 2C if Ryan Johansson doesn't fit. But now that you have Drewen there, and Drewen is not going to be a stackable type of center, and he knows, unfortunately he can't play center. If Drewen no, could play no. center, that would have solved a lot of issues. But because of that, I think Drewen isn't of the status that someone like Miko or even what Landeskog used to be were. And and because of that I think the move like I've pretty much at this point I've all but lost hope in Ryan Johansson making it work. And not because he is a bad player, but because the fit just seem doesn't seem to be there.
0: You don't the see it you, you the, don't see it uh with Lekanen and I I know that's a few weeks away, but you don't yeah. see it with Lekanen and Nishushkin either. So you don't see Joe Hansen would, with those be, two clicking.
1: That would be the last kind of hope. Because they did play together early in the season. They had some pretty good underlying numbers. They didn't produce, but you know a right. lot of players weren't producing back then. But they had some pretty good underlying numbers. They had, uh, I believe it was, more than 60% of the scoring opportunities when they're on the ice. You know These are advanced stats and obviously kind of grasping at straws. But they had 46 shots on goal when they were on the ice compared to 28 against. They had 27 to 10 for scoring chances, 13 to 6 for high danger scoring right. chances. So they were playing pretty well together. The puck just wasn't going yeah. in. Now, when, when the Avalanche brought in Johansson, this was kind of my hope all along for his fit is we know this guy is not a speedy player. We know he's lost a step from already being a guy that's not known for his speed. And we know the Avalanche skate fast. The biggest thing for me was going to be Lekkonen and Nechushkin are two very smart wingers. And the hope would be for Johansson to fit in with one of those two guys or both of those guys on that line and play a high IQ two-way type of line where even if you need to slow the game down, you're doing it with, uh, you know, control of the pace and control of the game because you have three players on the ice that are known for their two-way game. So that would be kind of the last hope. And if Johansson can make it work, then great. But I I personally don't know at this point if the Avalanche, like unless he does something wildly outrageous over a 20-game stretch, I personally can't see the Avalanche going into the postseason without bringing in another centerman. But, you know, this would be kind of his last chance would be Tatar is gone, Drouin has figured it out and is now playing on the top line. You have a Val Natrushkin who's playing the best hockey of his career, in my opinion. Let's get Lacken and back healthy. Let's see if you can make something work with this trio. Uh,
0: but we all agree it's unsustainable to have McKinnon and Ranton playing more than 30 minutes a game and Taves yeah. playing 30 minutes a game and McCarr playing 31, 32 minutes a game. That, that's not sustainable. I know it was an overtime game the other night. I get yeah, that, yeah. but uh, that's not something that I, I thought last year playing McCarr 26 and a half minutes a game, for example, was way, way too much. Uh, yeah, way way too much if yeah. you wanted his best on a regular yeah. basis uh you know you get beyond 25 minutes even as extraordinary a defenseman as Makar is you're yeah. you're pacing yourself you, you you have to and you're you're obviously killing penalties and you're on the power play uh maybe being on the power play isn't it doesn't involve that much physical exertion but uh for him uh, it does uh, he he's a one man point man uh on yeah. that top power play unit. But uh, I think we need to get to the goaltending here uh, because that's been the subject. that I, I thought it was okay the other night, but certainly among contending teams, uh, you perhaps have uh, done the research on this uh, uh, that I haven't done as of yet, but I can't imagine a contending team having two goaltenders with, save percentages of... Lower than 900. But that's exactly what the Avalanche have now with Georgiev at 894 and Prozvatov at 895. That's not good enough for a contending no. team. Yeah, for, for a playoff-aspiring team, it's usually not good enough. The Avalanche have been able to camouflage that to an extent in uh, going over the first half of the season out to a record of 26-12-3. But how long can they continue to hide what seem to be some obvious weaknesses between the pipes
1: yeah it's ultimately it's gotten to the point with me where i believe in georgiev yes. a lot of people don't and if you're if you're reading the twitter machine you will learn pretty quickly that a lot of people don't believe in georgiev yeah. i personally do i like However, him
0: but he's not played well since the first six games or so of the season
1: yes One hundred percent. He was good against Boston, even though he let in three goals.
0: He was okay. Yeah, yeah, He was okay. And uh, you know, one goal he was screened. Uh, The other uh, involved a pass that seemed to tick off Taves' skate and maybe uh, gave the Avalanche a bit of a bad bounce. Um, Couldn't really fault him, although he broke his stick over the crossbar on the second after the second goal uh, was scored. I agree with you. I thought he was fine the other night, but again. you know you love the wins uh 22 of them after leading the league in wins last year but the save percentage the goals against 2.97 only one shutout uh in what 33 games not what the avalanche had in mind when the season began from Georgiev.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing for Georgiev for me is so I believe in him. However, I think you will get Georgiev's best when he's playing a heck of a lot less than he is now. I simply believe the avalanche are playing Georgiev, the amount of the number of games and the number of minutes, as if they have a Hellebuck and a Soros and a Sorokin on their hands. And they just don't have that. I wrote an article about this the other day where I said that, you know, I've, I've been the, 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 the guy sitting front row, most of the season asking Jared, do you feel like you're overplaying this guy? Coach, do you feel like you're overplaying this guy? And, and, He's always said, no, this is going to give us the best chance to win. We check on him. We make sure he's feeling good. But really what Jared Bednar is saying is, I don't have another choice. Ivan Prostatov has come in and shown a couple of games here and there. This was a waiver wire pickup the day before the season started for most that don't remember. By losing Fransos and by losing that tandem goalie that you can trust to play from – anywhere from 27 to 35 games, and he will give you a good 27 to 35 games, I would argue one of the better tandem goalies in the NHL 2020 and 2022 when he was healthy, man, you miss Pavel Francois a lot because without him, you just don't have another option. And, and I wrote an article the other day talking about how at this point, you can't blame Jared Bednar for doing what he's doing with Georgiev because of what we saw Prosvetov do against the Florida Panthers, not even just the first three goals, the entire team was kind of asleep at the wheel, those first three goals. The fourth goal was awful, though.
0: The fourth goal completely was completely on
1: The fourth goal was the backbreaker. That was the team has come back, they're playing well, everything's going well, and then this defenseman who's not known for scoring, not at this part, part, point of his career, shoots a sister from the wrist shot and it beats it clean. Yeah. That is the exact reason why I can't blame Jared Bednar anymore. I genuinely believe the Avalanche should give Eustace Ananen an opportunity and see if he's ready. I don't think he is, but it's an opportunity. And if not, you got to be like the Toronto Maple Leafs and like many other teams in the market for a goalie yet the trade deadline yeah, in a wow. year
0: where it just seems
1: like there aren't a lot of market options available. No, no they, there you
0: are. You're right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the good ones are clearly not going anywhere. Uh, yeah. I, I I did like the fact that uh, I've seen to match his counterpart uh, the other night, although the Avalanche yep. had more shots on goal. Uh, I I didn't think there was a great deal to choose uh, between the two goaltenders. Um, I, I want to ask you about the Avs position at this point because we remember last year that yep. uh, not quite at midpoint, but 2017 and three after 40 games. And yeah. next to that, 26 12 and three looks pretty good. Uh, 55 yep. points at the halfway mark, um, projects out to 105 to 110 points. Uh, I know there are other variables at play, but if you double everything, the Avs figure to uh, finish with about the record they had last year of 52 24 and 6, very close to what they did uh, last year. Uh, and that was with a 31 7 and 4 finish. Uh, mm-hmm. There are only two teams in the entire league who have not yet lost 10 regulation games. Unfortunately for the Avalanche, uh, played and beat one the other night in Boston. That's great. But Winnipeg's in the Avs division. and uh, yeah. Winnipeg at the moment has two games in hand on the Avalanche, a one-point lead, and a record of 26-9-4. It will require of the Avalanche, Dallas, and frankly anybody in the West right now, including those in the Pacific Division, a great deal of to catch Winnipeg. Winnipeg hands down, certainly over the last month, has been the best team in the West, if not the best team in the league.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The big thing with that is I think it's a little bit too early to really be too concerned about catching a team that's only you know one, potentially three or five points ahead of you if they win those two games in hand, because you just said it. The Avalanche last season finished the year thirty-one seven and four. They were at game forty when they were twenty seventeen and three. After that embarrassing loss to Chicago, they were out of the playoffs. Right. And we asked Jared Bednar, "Do you care about a division title or home ice advantage, or do you just want to get in?" And he said, "We just need to get in. We know what it takes to win." A month later, they rattle off all these wins, and <laughs> Bednar said, "We're going for the division
0: title, and yeah, they want it." That's right. And they won <laughs> it, wanted, and then they got Seattle and got beat in in seven games. So I'm not really worried about their first-round opponent. Uh, You know, Dallas looks like a better team than Seattle was last year, but, uh, you know, Seattle's one of those hot teams lately, too. Uh, I I don't know that there's an easy mark uh, in any potential first-round series, but, again, uh, the NHL playoff format uh, demands that uh, in each division, the second-place team plays the third-place team, in the first round of the playoffs, even if those two teams might be the second and third best teams in the entire conference, <laughs> if not the entire yeah. league,
1: we saw that with Toronto and Tampa Bay a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah, I Boston mean it's silly. It, I, it's the it only is,
0: thing about the yeah. playoff format in the NHL that I don't like. Yeah,
1: agreed. You and me both. I would rather go back to the one eight format. The biggest right. thing right now one eight
0: two seven three six four five.
1: Bingo. Yeah. Now the biggest thing for me with all of that is to say, I actually, I've never thought I would ever have this take, but after the last two, three years, I actually have this take, the avalanche usually heading into this part of the year. Think back to the last few seasons. They're usually the team with the games in hand. Like if you look at the standings right now, Tampa Bay has played 42. Colorado has played 41. There are teams that have played 36 and 37. And in years past that used to be Colorado because of the Finland trip and all of that, where it was like, yeah,
0: yeah, all right,
1: right, you know, right. we are one point, you know, the avalanche are looking at the standings thinking we are one point back of Winnipeg, but we are the team with two games in hand. And then we're going to go off and rattle, rattle off a 31, seven and four ending. We're going to make up those points and more. I now have the take that because you're within reach of Winnipeg, all it takes is a good week. And like Winnipeg to go one, one and one, and you're fine because you're within reach of Winnipeg. I actually prefer that the Avalanche, for once, are not the team of the games. games right, right. They, they play their schedule is
0: a little lighter than Winnipeg's, uh, and, and basically, most anybody in the West right now, between now and the end of the regular season, they just uh, because Same they go. played more games, they're they're at the halfway mark right now. Um, I don't know that anybody else is. Uh, You know, the Kings have played 36 games, for example, five fewer than the Avalanche. So uh, I know they're Mm -hmm. in the other division, but uh, uh, here in this division we got Winnipeg uh, at 39 games, Dallas at 39 games, Nashville at 40 games, St. Louis at 38 games, uh, and on it goes. So, uh, yes, uh, the schedule, the second half of the season, considerably lighter. uh, Starting the second half of the season, the game tonight, against the las vegas golden knights at ball arena rf dean thank you very much as our mile high sports appreciate hockey correspondent it. it's always a pleasure
1: thank you i appreciate you having me on
0: thanks i appreciate it and uh, there he goes graduate of the university of michigan and when we come back we'll talk a little nuggets who will also be on national tv tonight taking on the utah jazz one of the unexpectedly hot teams in the nba right now that's next
2: This is Sandy Clough and
0: Sean Drotar on Mile High Sports. Sandy Clough, Sean Drotar here on Mile High Sports, 981 FM, 107.5 HD3. We can be uh, viewed at milehighsports.com slash watch, or if you want to listen, milehighsports.com slash listen and Mile High Sports app also uh, provides uh, an opportunity for you to consume our program on a regular basis. On this uh, Wednesday, 10th day of January 2024, our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey, and you can call or text us at 303-831-1340. That's 303-831-1340. Text or call us if you have some thoughts on any of the uh, subjects that uh, we raise, not only today but on a daily basis. Uh, We'll get to the Nuggets, who are on national TV tonight, taking on the Utah Jazz in Utah, a team the Nuggets knocked off earlier in the season and generally thought to be uh, one of the bottom feeders in the Western Conference. Well, it is true that with a record of 18-20, and the Jazz stand only 11th out of 15 teams in the Western Conference. You say well what's the big deal one they have been perhaps as hot over the last 10 15 games as any team in the nba they knocked off milwaukee the other night in milwaukee and the bucks are second in the east behind only boston at the moment but the true indicator and it's the reason i use this measuring device because Teams, even this far into the season, have played so many more home games than road games, road games than home games, that the overall records can be misleading. The Utah Jazz, at the moment, have won two more road games than they have lost at home. So, in other words, the Jazz have played 22 of their 38 games to date on the road. So, 18 and 20 isn't too bad. There are only 11 teams in the NBA that are better than plus two. There is Boston, there is at plus 11, Minnesota at plus nine, Denver, and the Knicks, another team with a record that is misleading. The Knicks are playing much better basketball than you might imagine from merely looking at uh, their record. And at this point, uh, you have to consider that uh, the Utah Jazz are a reputable opponent right there with Sacramento and New Orleans, two teams that have already beaten the Nuggets at least once uh, this season. Uh, yes, uh, let me amend that. Boston's at plus 11. Minnesota now at plus 10 after a road win last night. Denver and the Knicks plus 7. Oklahoma City, Milwaukee, Miami at plus 5. Clippers and Philadelphia at plus 4. Dallas and Orlando at plus 3. And then you have Sacramento, New Orleans, Utah at plus 2. Indiana and Cleveland at plus 1. So 16 of the 30 teams are playing somewhere between pretty good and and great basketball at the moment. And there are two other teams, the Lakers and Atlanta, that are basically 500 teams. The key in understanding where the Nuggets are at this point is that Denver, against the teams they should beat, the teams with losing records, the teams with more home losses than road wins, are 19-3. and 3 through their first 22 games against those particular teams, Lakers, Atlanta, Memphis, Houston, Phoenix, Brooklyn, Toronto, Golden State, Chicago, Portland, Charlotte, Washington, San Antonio, and Detroit. 19-3 is pretty good. Yes, all three losses came at the hands of the Houston Rockets, and the one loss the Nuggets sustained at home against Houston along with maybe the loss the other night to Orlando at home when they had an 18-point lead and half of Orlando's team was out injured or sick. Probably the only two losses, the two home losses that you look back on this year against Orlando and Houston and say those are bad losses. The Nuggets against the best teams in the league, the best eight teams in the league, apart from Denver itself, three and four against Dallas, Orlando, Sacramento, New Orleans, Utah, Indiana, and Cleveland, four and five. So maybe you'd like a record a little closer to 500 or above 500 against the good teams, but Utah is one of those good teams, at least the way they're playing at the moment. And if I were to identify four coaches who, as we near the halfway point of the NBA season, have done the best work, well, Eric Spolstra just got a nice new contract extension with the Miami Heat. The Miami record is 21-15. and Not that great. But they're a plus five. Five more road wins than home losses. Spolstra, year in and year out, gets more out of Miami than most any other coach could get out of that particular team. And that's why he is among the most experienced coaches, senior-most coaches with one team in all the NBA. But, you know, apart from Eric Spolstra in Miami, Will Hardy in Utah has done a sensational coaching job. Tom Thibodeau with the Knicks. Mark Dagnault of Oklahoma City. Those would be the four coaches I'd put up there. Finch in Minnesota, I think, has been terrific. Uh, Joe Mazzula, who got a lot of heat last year for, quote-unquote, underachieving with the Boston Celtics, is uh, also doing a fine coaching job. But those four, Hardy, Spolster, Thibodeau, Dagnault, would be the coaches I'd look at first as Coach of the Year possibilities at least as we near the halfway mark of this current NBA season. When we come back, we'll get back to the Broncos. We'll hear more from general manager George Payton, uh, remarks he made earlier this week about all of the dead cap money problems the Broncos may have, particularly if they choose to release quarterback Russell Wilson, and on other subjects as well. We will be visiting at the bottom of the hour with Rick Perea, our weekly Wellness Wednesday podcast, our checkup from the neck up, and a lot of big coaching news this afternoon, including the retirement of Nick Saban at age 72 at Alabama and the dismissal of Pete Carroll at age 72 as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. All of that is just ahead. Stay with us on MyLive Sports. We're